Blog Talk Radio.
everybody. Welcome to the show. Haven't had one in a while. Um, happy to be back on air. A lot of stuff to talk about. Um, I will give everybody my uh, my story as to how I may have had COVID. Um, if I did have it, I'm one of the lucky ones, knock on wood. Um, but who knows if I even had it, man. I'll go through the whole story. I'll start with that in just a second. And then there's a lot of stuff to catch up on. Barack Obama endorses Joe Biden officially. Bernie Sanders endorses Joe Biden officially. A uh, lot of updates on the stimulus situation, the bailout. We have um, <clears throat> Bernie talked to the Associated Press, and there were shots fired at some of his uh, staffers, I guess, or now you say former staffers. Um Noam Chomsky weighs in on Bernie Sanders' campaign. A lot of this stuff you guys have probably uh, heard about before, but I'm playing catch-up here, so I got a lot of stuff to uh, to cover. Um, and Trump attempted to play doctor in one of his press conferences, and that did not go very well. <laughs> so we'll talk about that also. So, all right, without further ado, let's jump right into it. <clears throat> and I'll tell you guys my story. So I'm back on air, and I'm happy to be back on air, Um, and the reason why I was away for a little bit there is because I may have had COVID. Um, I don't know if I did. I haven't gotten tested, and I haven't, um, you know, at some point I want to take the antibody test, but um, I don't know how to get my hand on one of those uh, at this point in time, and, you know, my general sense of it is that the hoops you have to jump through are not worth it at the moment. And I'd rather just, you know, stay isolated and and not put anybody else in danger if I still have it. And if I'm still contagious, um, but let me tell everybody exactly how it happened. So Thursday night or or Friday morning, it was, it was Friday at 4 AM. So it was, you know, Thursday night for me, um, in my interpretation of it, I don't, I wouldn't really refer to 4 AM as like Friday morning. I, it's more of a Thursday night thing to me. But anyway, I woke up um, absolutely freezing. And I'm, I'm never like that. So for me, um, you know, I don't sleep with uh, too many layers on. And I like it chilly. I like the room chilly. I'm like a, like a 67 degree kind of guy. And even with 67 degrees, Throughout the course of the night, I'm usually shoving a foot or two outside of the uh, outside of the old blanket. So I woke up Friday morning, Thursday night, 4 a.m., just absolutely freezing, and I was like, "Oh no!" So I I got up and I I took my temperature. Now this is where there's a lot of disagreement among people in my inner circle who I've talked to as to whether or not I had it or didn't have it, and you're about to understand why that is. Um, now my resting temperature normally, so if I were to take my temperature on any normal day where I feel totally normal, uh, it's about 97. I have like a a relatively low, sometimes even like 96.7, 96.8. I have a relatively low resting temperature. So that night when I took my temperature was 99.5. Now I'm told you only really have to worry about COVID when it's like 100.4 or higher. But, you know, my interpretation of it is I'm having fever symptoms. I woke up in the middle of the night with chills. 
uh, and I'm 2.5 degrees above what my resting is. So obviously that's, that's concerning. So um, Friday morning I had to do um, Rising with Crystal and Sagar, and I did the show. It was, it was quick. It was, you know, whatever, 10, 15 minutes. And uh, you can't tell from watching it because I watched it back, but I was hurting during that segment. Um, and my symptoms were extreme fatigue, sleepiness, absolutely no hunger at all. And I was incapable of, my body wasn't capable of regulating its temperature. Um, like, you know, I would either be too hot or too cold. It was impossible to get comfortable. Um, and I also had minor uh, stomach problems as well. Didn't manifest into anything. But it was just, you felt it a little bit. Um, but that was the extent of my symptoms. That's it. That's where it stopped. And I never had the throat problems. I never had the coughing problem. I never had uh, breathing issues. Now, in, in reading about it, come to find out, it's 68% of COVID cases that uh, end up having the dry cough and the throat problems. So, you know, it's possible I had it and I was in that 30% that doesn't have that symptom. But... You know, I just found it weird that, and thought there's always a chance I didn't have it because I never had any throat issues or, or coughing issues. Um, so I took beforehand, just so everybody knows, I took every single precaution imaginable. I'm not kidding when I say in the span of a month and a half, you know, I had, I had been in public maybe two or three times, and the times that I did go in public, I, had, I was covering my face. You know, I sent uh, my, my friends and my family a picture of me one time when I went to the store, and I'm wearing, like, you know, one of the, one of the winter ski masks and where, like, everything is covered except the eyes aren't, and then I had sunglasses on to cover the eyes, so it looks like I'm going to go rob the place. And, you know, everybody knows how much I've been on top of this COVID situation and following the news, and, and so I know how bad it can be. So I've been, I took every single precaution imaginable. Never went out in public when I didn't have to. The only time I went was uh, to the grocery store, one, two, in and out, totally covered. Um, and then the only other interaction that I had was with my neighbor, where my neighbor was way more than six feet away from me. Now, I will say that I had at times heard my neighbor coughing. I heard him coughing. I also happened to know that he never he never actually got sick, though. Like, he never, he had a little cough, but he never had any other symptoms at all, and he's perfectly healthy, and he hasn't had any problems. Um, but even so, when I did have a small conversation with him, he was more than six feet away. So if I had it, this thing is so insanely contagious that I can't wrap my mind around it, that we're really having a conversation about whether or not it's airborne. Not just, you know, not just because um, they say now the official story is when you have the flu, you, you will give the flu to like 1.5 people. They say COVID's like 2.5 or 3. So it's about double as contagious as the flu, which is pretty contagious. But, you know, and granted, this is anecdotal and this is total bro science, but I, I 100% can tell everybody I wasn't going anywhere. I was away from everybody. And the only times I stepped out in public, I was taking every single precaution imaginable. And, um, you know, so if I did happen to get 
COVID, it's, it's amazing that it, I found a way to get it because it would seemingly be impossible. Now, I am in a hot zone, but still, when you take every precaution, you would think it's pretty much impossible to get it, but here we are. So um, now here are, the, here are the possibilities. There are a bunch of possibilities. It's possible that I didn't have it. That's certainly possible. Now, a good counterargument to that, though, is, well, then what the heck did you have? Because I know I had something. I'm not, I will not entertain the idea that I had nothing because I know the symptoms. And the symptoms were definitely something. They were not nothing. They were not psychosomatic. It was definitely something. So what the heck was it if if it wasn't COVID? I don't know. I really don't know. But it's possible I didn't have it. Um, It's also possible, here's where it gets interesting, that I had it, but viral load with COVID is a real issue. Viral load, meaning, you know, I had it, but I had very, very little of it. And you need a certain amount, a certain threshold to get really sick. Or there's a direct correlation between how much, you know, you get in you and how sick you get. See, normally the way viruses work and the way I think about viruses and probably the way you think about viruses as well, it's like you either have it or you don't. Like, it's that simple. Did you get it or did you not get it? That's the, you know, that's how I think about it, how I've always thought about it. But there's been some evidence to suggest that there's a direct correlation between how much gets in your body initially and then how sick you get. If that is the case, that would be consistent with what happened to me. That would be a logical explanation. That would be a reasonable explanation that perhaps I just got the tiniest amount possible in me and that gave me these symptoms and I'm just lucky that I didn't get way more. I mean, that's, I think that's a a, a very, very possible um, scenario because when you look at what's happening with people who work in hospitals, that's many young doctors are getting very sick and dying. And it could be because they're just constantly getting bombarded with the virus. So another option is that I had it, but, you know, it was always going to be mild for me for whatever reason. Uh, Maybe there's something when it comes to genetics, maybe it's something about health. I mean, I know I'm young, but I don't necessarily think I'm the picture of health. I don't think I'm like, you know, um, the kind of person who would fare best with my immune system. If anything, I think maybe my immune system is a little on the weaker side because it's not tested all that much because of the nature of my job. I'm not usually out and about a lot in public. So if anything, I would say, you know, the opposite, but it's possible it's something genetic that I just wasn't going to get it bad. Um, And then this, uh, this other thing occurred to me as well. It's also possible that since I was sick over the winter for like a three or four week period, my immune system was prepared to fight it off. Now, I'm not like, there's a lot of people out there who are saying, I swear I had COVID in like November or December. There's a lot of people out there saying that. Um, I'm not saying that because I know I didn't have COVID in November or December because my symptoms for the sickness I had probably in November or December, it was just um, really like standard cold symptoms. Like I had a lot of congestion. I was blowing my nose, my throat hurt. It was that. It wasn't, it wasn't COVID symptoms, and, and COVID, you know, fam- very famously, people don't have congestion and aren't blowing their nose and stuff like that. So, but my point is, there are the coronaviruses, that's a family of viruses, and I could have had a cold that was a coronavirus, not the coronavirus. And so perhaps that could have prepped my immune system for having a different kind of coronavirus, namely COVID, and so I was able to fight it off relatively well. And it's also possible that, you know, I had it, and I have it, and um, there have been cases, I don't know how many, but plenty of cases where 
people have it, they feel like they get better, and then they get worse again, and they fall off a cliff. I mean, I guess it's still technically possible that I have it like that. Um, but I don't know. I would say I'm like 95% better. So 95 is a pretty high number. So I knock on, on wood, I would like to think that whatever I had is gone now. So hopefully that's true. Um, but my overall takeaway from this, guys, is just stay home as much as possible. <laughs> because it's not even that for me this time around, it wasn't even that the symptoms were so bad that, um, you know, it was like this worst sickness of my life. It was what goes on in your head as you know you have symptoms. And you're like, oh, my God, is this going to get worse? Oh, my God, am I going to not be able to breathe? Oh, my God, am I going to have to go to the hospital? And then probably one of the biggest mistakes I made was telling you guys a couple days ago, like, okay, I might have it. Because I got a bunch of messages where people were like, bro, I know somebody exact same symptoms as you, hospital right now, or dead. And I'm like, uh uh-huh. Why did I even say anything publicly? Uh-huh. Because what happens is you read that and you're already in a vulnerable state and then you start thinking about it. And then like the fact that your mind goes so negative makes your body feel more negative as well. So, yeah, but for me, I mean, the strongest symptoms were um, just extreme fatigue and um, all, I mean, I slept so much in those first two days on, um, Friday and Saturday, I mean, it was like nonstop sleep. I probably slept for 13 hours. I slept a lot, and I just didn't want to move, move at all. I had extreme fatigue, zero hunger. I mean, I did eat, but I had, like, the whole time I was faking it, like forcing myself to get the food down because I could have gone for sure without eating. So I don't know. I don't know. But now, you know, at this point, I can almost hope that, like, wow, I really hope I had it, and, had, and now I have the antibodies, so now I feel like Superman, but I don't know. I don't know. At some point, I'll take the antibody test, but it's too tough to get your hands on a test now, so I'm not going to do it. But anyway, I'm back. I'm happy to be back. I hope everybody's healthy, and, and I hope everybody stays at home as much as possible because I'm a real cautionary tale that I could have dodged a bullet if I did have it, and I'm somebody who, even with every precaution in the world, still maybe somehow managed to get it, and that's a terrifying thought. All right, now... Now, now, now. Barack Obama, you son of a gun. All right, let me dive into this one for you guys. Barack Obama officially endorsed Joe Biden. And um, in his 12-minute video... He spoke a little bit about Bernie Sanders. I want to watch that portion, and then we'll discuss it. Now, Joe will be a better candidate for having run the gauntlet of primaries and caucuses alongside one of the most impressive Democratic fields ever. Each of our candidates were talented and decent, with a track record of accomplishment, smart ideas, and serious visions for the future. And that's certainly true of the candidate who made it farther than any other, Bernie Sanders. Bernie is an American original, a man who has devoted his life to giving voice to working people's hopes, dreams, and frustrations. He and I haven't always agreed on everything, but we've always shared a conviction that we have to make America a fairer, more just, more equitable society. We both know that nothing is more powerful than millions of voices calling for change. 
and the ideas he's championed, the energy and enthusiasm he inspired, especially in young people, will be critical in moving America in a direction of progress and hope. Because for the second time in 12 years, we'll have the incredible task of rebuilding our economy. And to meet the moment, the Democratic Party will have to be bold. You know, I could not be prouder of the incredible progress that we made together during my presidency. But if I were running today, I wouldn't run the same race or have the same platform as I did in 2008. The world is different. There's too much unfinished business for us to just look backwards. We have to look to the future. Bernie understands that, and Joe understands that. It's one of the reasons that Joe already has what is the most progressive platform of any major party nominee in history. Because even before the pandemic turned the world upside down, it was already clear that we needed real structural change. The vast inequalities created by the new economy are easier to see now, but they existed long before this pandemic hit. Health professionals, teachers, delivery drivers, grocery clerks, cleaners, the people who truly make our economy run, they've always been essential. And for years, too many of the people who do the essential work of this country have been underpaid, financially stressed, and given too little support. And that applies to the next generation of Americans. Young people graduating into unprecedented unemployment. They're going to need economic policies that give them faith in the future and give them relief from crushing student loan debt. So we need to do more than just tinker around the edges with tax credits or underfunded programs. We have to go further to give everybody a great education, a lasting career, and a stable retirement. We have to protect the gains we made with the Affordable Care Act. But it's also time to go further. We should make plans affordable for everyone, provide everyone with a public option, expand Medicare, and finish the job so that health care isn't just a right, but a reality for everybody. We have to return the U.S. to the Paris Agreement and lead the world in reducing the pollution that causes climate change. But science tells us we have to go much further, and it's time for us to accelerate progress on bold new green initiatives that make our economy a clean energy innovator, save us money, and secure our children's future. Of course, Democrats may not always agree on every detail of the best way to bring about each and every one of these changes. But we do agree that they're needed. I disagree. I disagree. And, and that is the crux of the difference between my politics and Barack Obama's, is that he's saying, listen, 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 we're all Democrats, and so we all want these good things to happen. It's just a matter of we're disagreeing as to how we get these good things to happen. So it, it, the disagreement is in the details, but the goals are the same. That's what Barack Obama is, is, is saying. But that's not true. And I think any serious evaluation of the evidence of the past few decades disproves that. And what I mean by that is we're not, we're not having an honest ideological disagreement as to how to get to the same goal. We're not. We're not. What we have is some people saying, I would like a social democratic vision implemented. I would like a social democratic country. I would like social democratic policies. And we have others saying, no, no social democracy, because really, and they wouldn't say this out loud, but this is what I think is actually going on behind the scenes, I have to make sure I please my corporate donors because the corporate donors are the ones who, who give us money to run our campaigns. So it's just par for the course that we have to represent the rich 
and we have to represent the corporations. They don't even, like, I don't think they even think about it as corruption. They just think this is how it works. And they would think you're, you know, like a naive, stupid idiot for saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't do it like that. They'd be like, oh, that's a good one. Of course you take money from, you know, for-profit health insurance companies and big pharma and Wall Street. You have no choice. So the reality is it's not just, oh, an honest disagreement between two wings of the party. One wing, however few people it has in it, is saying, hey, let's have social democracy. And then the other is, no, I raise my money from corporations. So even though I might know social democracy is correct, I'm going to say, well, we have to functionally be neoliberal corporatists. So that's why Barack Obama, people like me and so many like me, are just not interested at all in your vision and Joe Biden's vision is because we don't think this is an honest debate. We don't think this is an honest discussion. We think that really you're prioritizing what your donors want and, and what your donors want is fundamentally at odds with what's good for the people. So you can't walk that tightrope and, and do that balancing act and come out a hero because really you shouldn't be concerned about what the donors want. It should all be about the people. So that's the point is, And this is why Barack Obama is a really good politician, is because he's making you think that he either agrees with you or where he disagrees with you, it's okay because it's a reasonable and honest disagreement. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not a reasonable and honest disagreement. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party, they're neoliberal corporatists, and they want to serve corporations above people, which is why you have so many lefties that are just completely fed up. And they're like, no, I'm just not going to play this game anymore. I think... uh, I think you guys are frauds. And by the way, yes, let, now let's get into it. Um, here he is, you know, uh, pretending to sing Bernie's praises. We all know behind the scenes, because there was extensive reporting on it, he did whatever he could to screw Bernie. We know that he orchestrated Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropping out at the last minute to endorse Biden. He did that. So now you're going to come out here and pretend like, it's okay, Bernie supporters. Give us your vote because I love your guy. See, I'm going to say some kind words about him. You just stabbed him in the back with an axe. And now you're pretending like, yes, Bernie, yes. Oh, such a fighter, Bernie is. And that's why you did what you did, is because he is a fighter and he's not a corporatist. Um, The other thing is we know that they forced, this broke yesterday, we know that they forced the Wisconsin vote. And they were willing to escalate the feud against Bernie and blame Bernie. Like they were saying, you are going to have that vote in Wisconsin, even though we're in a pandemic. You're going to do it. We're we're basically going to make you do it, Wisconsin. So they were like forcing people to go vote in a pandemic to try to hurry this thing over. And then they would have turned around and, and been like, Bernie's being unreasonable. Unite the party. Unite the party. They were ready to escalate in, in a feud with Bernie starting in Wisconsin. So it, it's just it's so gross and underhanded and slimy and, and cheap political tactics. Um, now, there's another part where he says, well, Joe is uh, his most progressive platform, yes! It's still comically, comically nowhere near good enough. I mean, we already discussed. His concession to Bernie supporters was, all right, no Medicare for all, but I'll lower the Medicare age to 60. Huh? Huh? Hillary in 2016 said, I'll lower it to 55 or 50. 
That's going in the wrong direction. And by the way, I know that this part is controversial, and some people will come after me for this, but I don't care. I don't believe Joe either. Even if he did have the most progressive platform, I don't believe him. See, this is part of the problem with nominating somebody who's a corporatist who's been in D.C. for decades is I already know everything about him, and I know exactly how he's going to govern. It's not a question, and I'm not going to delude myself into thinking, ho, 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 maybe he'll actually be like FDR. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. So I'm not going to play this game, and I don't believe him, and that's the problem. So don't, it, it, the attempt to, like, feed him to us is so gross. And then, um, and then Obama says, Listen, if I was running today, I wouldn't run with the same platform I had in 2008 because we got to go further. That's obvious. Times change. Again, see, this shows me why he was able to become president is because he's such a better politician than Mayor Pete Beto and all of his, like, cheap knockoffs because there's a lot of Obama knockoffs out there. We all know that. There's a lot of people looked at his success and, like, I will copy everything about that man in order to try to, to become president. And what Mayor Pete and Beto were too – stupid to understand is that, hey guys, you're not supposed to lead and make arguments for and campaign on the neoliberal corporatism. The neoliberal corporatism is for the shitty deals that you make behind closed doors. That's what it's for. You have to pretend to be more idealistic in public to get people to support you. And I guarantee you Obama was watching some of the debates with Mayor Pete and and he would go off using Republican talking points. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for Medicare for all? How are you going to pay for it? And I'm sure that Obama was like, oh, my God, this absolute moron. Because Obama, yes, especially definitely in 2012 when he ran against Mitt Romney, he tried to make it look like he was FDR. He was hammering him on outsourcing and, and trade and it ran an ad with people who worked at a factory that Mitt Romney was a part owner of where they shut it down and outsourced the jobs. And I was watching that ad like, oh, my God, Obama's obliterating him because he was being populist. And then you got all these Obama knockoffs who go out there, and they're too dumb to realize, yes, he governed as a neoliberal corporatist, but you can't run on that because nobody likes it. So, and this is just proving that point that here's Obama – he goes out there, he's like, listen, if I was running today, I'd go much further. So you probably got Mayor Pete watching this like, uh, oh, is that why I messed up really badly? When I told everybody did not hope for a better future at all and that I, you know, I kept using Republican talking points. Was that my, Yes, you're running in a Democratic primary, Democratic, <laughs> not Republican. Oh, my God. Okay, so, um, so he's, he's a skilled politician and that he can here's, – here's Obama. Where are the winds blowing? I'm reading the room. And actually, Trump, in many ways, has that same quality. Trump never gets the credit for it. But yeah, Trump is really good. Noam Chomsky even says it, that Trump is a master at making his base, the Republican base, feel like he's the only you know, man in Washington fighting for them, while at the same time doing the entire agenda of the donor class and selling out to the establishment. He says it's masterful that I don't know how Trump is able to walk that tightrope and appease the base completely while also, you know, serving, serving the oligarchs. And Obama, it's a similar thing. He's a very skilled politician in that he makes you believe, if you are a conservative Democrat, he makes you believe like, oh, he's with me. If you are a, a lefty 
and you're naive about it and you're not really well educated on all these topics like you guys are, then you can watch that and go, oh, this Obama guy's great. He's talking about we need to go further. We can't, you know, look to the past. And, you know, we got to be bold. So, yeah, what's, I don't see why does, do people dislike him. It's because this is just the rhetoric. This is not the governing. And then the final point I'll make is this. And, again, I saw people fall for it on, uh, on Twitter. It made me sad. Waleed Shaheed was one of them. He's with Justice Democrats. And he was, like, quoting Obama's, you know, endorsement video here where he talks about going further. And it's almost like, a, see, we're winning. We're shifting the party to the left. And, I, honestly, I just think that that's naive because, guys, there's a reason why Obama doesn't say the words single-payer Medicare for all. There's a reason why he doesn't say it. Why? Because he's not for it. If he was for it, he would be like, yeah, we need to evolve and do a single-payer Medicare for all system. He doesn't say that. He uses a lot of weasel words and tap dances around it. Why? Because he's not going to be on the record as supporting that thing that he's not, so he uses the weasel words and tap dances around it. Yeah, let's go further. Let's expand Obamacare and do a public option. We're still having a conversation about public option. Your signature accomplishment, Obamacare, has been absolutely obliterated 19 ways to Sunday because it was a weak half measure. And your response to Republicans is, another weak half measure. Let's try that. Pathetic. Pathetic. The other thing he he mentioned, green policies, never says the word Green New Deal. Why? Because he's not for a Green New Deal. Do I really have to spell this out for everybody? Apparently the answer is I do. (laughs) I wish I didn't, but I do. But yeah, he's not fighting for you. He will make you believe he's doing that while he does the exact opposite. He will appease the rowdy base, the peasants, while he serves the donor class and works with the donor class because he's part of the donor class. The first thing he was in the news for when he left the presidency was what? Going to give like a $400,000 speech or something like that to Wall Street. So it's not the idea that he's on your side. Oh, he's just an honest power broker behind the scenes in the party and he just sat back and watched the primary play out, and whoops, look at that. The more conservative Democrats, Joe Biden happened to win. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, let me get out there now and pretend and tell all the disaffected lefties, it's okay. We're going to go further. And I'm going to make sure that we do that. Now just vote for us. Real con artist stuff, man. Real con artist stuff. All I'll say Listen, you vote however the hell you want to vote. All I'll say is do not delude yourself. Go in there with open eyes that if you do decide to vote for Joe Biden, you're going to get neoliberal corporatism. That's what you're going to get. That's it. That's what you're going to get. Now, I think it's a perfectly fair point if you say, hey, Kyle, neoliberal corporatism is better than neoconservatism. And it's better than standard Republican politics. If you want to make that argument, I think that's a perfectly fair argument to make. But my point is, do not feed me a steaming plate of dog shit and tell me it's a fudge brownie. Because then I come out here and I got to get mad and I got to correct the record. All right, next. Real cook hours with Bernie.
Bernie Sanders officially endorsed Joe Biden in what I think is a hard-to-watch conversation. Here's part of that. So today I am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, I'm asking every Independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse, to make certain that we defeat somebody who I believe, and I'm speaking just for myself now, uh, is the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country, a president, and you made this point, who downplayed this pandemic, who ignored the advice that some of his people were giving him, which has not, who has not used the Defense Production Act early on so that we could produce the masks, the gowns, the gloves, the ventilators that our medical personnel desperately need, who today, as I understand it, is threatening to fire Dr. Fauci, who has been an unbelievable, I mean, it is, who has been day after day the voice of science uh, to the American people trying to explain how we go forward uh, in this crisis, and he's threatening to fire him. So to me, for all of those reasons, and, and so many more, a president who doesn't, apparently has never read the Constitution of the United States, who believes he's above the law, a president who lies all of the time, a president who has at least shown me that he is a racist and a sexist and a homophobe and a xenophobe and a religious bigot. I mean, for all of those reasons or more, we've got to make Trump a one-term president, uh, and we need you in, in the White House. So I will do uh, all that I can uh, to see that that happens, Joe. And, and I know that there is an enormous responsibility on your shoulders right now, uh, and uh, it's imperative that all of us work together uh, to do what has to be done, not only in this moment, but beyond this moment, in the future of this country. And in that regard, I have been very pleased that your staff and my staff have been working together over the last several weeks uh, to coming up with a number of task forces. Uh, these are uh, task forces that will look at some of the most important issues facing this country, uh, the economy, how we create an economy that works for all, not just a few, uh, education, how we create the best educational system in the world for all of our people, uh, how we deal with climate change, uh, which, as you indicated, is an existential threat to the planet, uh, how we deal with uh, criminal justice, because uh, we don't want to continue having more people in jail than any other country on earth, how we deal with immigration uh, reform, uh, and uh, you know, how we have a health care system and that is so much better than what we have right now. Now, it's no great secret out there, Joe, that you and I have our differences, and we're not going to pay for them over. That's real. Uh, but I hope that these task forces uh, will come together uh, utilizing the best minds and, and people in your campaign and in my campaign uh, to work out real solutions to these very, very uh, important uh, problems. So uh, look forward to working with you and uh, bringing some great people into those task forces. Well, uh, Bernie, I want to thank you uh, um, uh, for that. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Um, 
And, uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, your endorsement means a great deal. It means a great deal to me. I think people are going to be surprised that we are apart on some issues, but we're awfully close on a whole bunch of others. So don't get me wrong, guys. I, I think that Bernie thinks he's doing the absolute best thing for his movement and the people at this point in time. In fact, I have no doubt about that. Bernie has proven to me over the years that you will, you'll get no cynical interpretation of his actions from me. I mean, I think he's proven himself over and over to be effectively a working-class hero and champion and that he really cares about these issues and he's, he's doing what he views is the best thing to bring about a better future and a better reality. I think that's all the case. However, I think Bernie is incredibly naive and very weak. And it brings me no joy to say that. I think that what he did here to steal a term from the kids, this is, uh, he's a cuck. So let me explain what I mean. Because Joe went on, by the way, to read off the teleprompter the entire time. He, he like stutters at the beginning because he's like, okay, like I don't put the thing on in front of me so I could do it. And then right where I cut that video off there, Joe goes on to respond and he's got, he's reading from the teleprompter the entire time. And, you know, talking about Bernie and how important he is, and then starts talking about some issues and all that stuff. But it's all on the teleprompter. Now, if you wanted to find a way to make lefties like myself feel like, oh, this is all just a show, couldn't have found a better way than that. Couldn't have found a better way. You couldn't actually have a conversation. You needed the teleprompter, and so that just means you're on script, which means you don't really necessarily believe everything you're saying, or your mind is so gone that you can't, you know, focus and engage in a conversation. But either way, that, uh, that's not good. Now, they go on to, you know, discuss, oh, some issues. The, Bernie, would you like to ask me a question? And Bernie's like, well, sure, Joe. I'm a big supporter of a $15 minimum wage. Are you? And Joe's like, oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. So, and this is why, now I've given you guys my, my purity test. And it's, you know, my top five issues. And I say, you have, I ha- you have to be in favor of one or two of them. But you can't just, it can't just be a placating thing. I have to feel like you're going to fight for it. I have to believe you. And in the case of Joe Biden, I hate to tell you guys, I don't believe him. So Bernie gets, you know, Joe to say, yeah, $15 minimum wage, sure. Did you guys know that Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden were in office for two terms, and at one point they had a supermajority, and they never got a minimum wage increase. Did you know the last time we had a minimum wage increase was under George W. Bush? Did you know that? So I I don't believe you, Joe. I don't think you're going to get me a $15 minimum wage. If I thought you did and I thought you were going to fight for it, I'd vote for you because that passes my test. Now, maybe I have to think about that a little further because he's actually a war criminal and I have a very big problem voting for a war criminal. So I don't know. That'd be a tough one that I have to consider for a while because they're mitigating factors like being a war criminal that I genuinely believe that Joe Biden should be behind bars today. Uh, But I digress from that. Um, So what could Bernie have done that I think would have made sense, would have been reasonable and something where I would have supported him and something where they could have gotten me to vote for Joe Biden? I definitely think it's possible they could have done it. Let's say... Let's say Bernie Sanders has a meeting with Joe Biden, as I'm sure they did, you know, in the weeks leading up to this moment here. 
And he says, Joe, listen, man, I love you, but we saw what happened in 2016, and basically me and my movement, we were placated. And we didn't actually get um, the extractions and the concessions that we thought were fair. We feel like we got screwed, to put it plain and simple. So, Joe, here's what I'm proposing to you. I put together a list of these 10 executive orders. These 10 executive orders are not things that you've, you know, openly said, like, I'm against this, like Medicare for all. These 10 executive orders are areas where you do have the wiggle room. And you do, if you really open your mind and open your eyes, you, you might actually be in favor of these things, okay? Things like legalizing marijuana. Because, you know, he famously wrote the crime bill and he was a big drug warrior. But recently, Joe tried to soften his rhetoric on that. Like, no, 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 I'm not like that anymore. Uh, so if we, Bernie could have put together a list of 10 bomb executive orders, just great, whether legalizing uh, marijuana and that you take it off the, um, the scheduled substances list. Right now it's a Schedule 1, at least lower the schedule rating. Um, he could have put together, you know, hey, pardon not all the nonviolent drug offenders or as many as you can. This is all stuff that Joe Biden could do um, and the Iraq war within 100 days. Biden said a couple times in the like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to get out of the Middle East. Now, there's always caveats and hedges, and I think he doesn't really want to do it. But Bernie Sanders could have given Joe Biden a list of 10 really awesome executive orders. Another one I think of is the Buy American executive order, which says, you know, basically, if the federal government needs to purchase goods, it can only buy goods that are produced in America. Right now, we say that it's on paper that, oh, yeah, we only buy made in America, but that includes all of our allies, too. So we can get from Israel, we can get from China, and then say, oh, yeah, this is made in America. You could sign an executive order that says, no, made in America means made in America. So that would immediately help American industry. You could instantly penalize all outsourcers. It's another thing you could do, just like this, if you're president. Sign your name, that's it, you're done. You could take care of it. The president can do a lot of things through executive orders, a lot of things. Bernie Sanders could have made a list of 10 amazing executive orders and said, Joe, listen, here's the list. If you do these 10 within the first 100 days, I will do everything I can to get you elected, and I will do everything I can to make it so my people help get you elected. If you tell me you don't want to do these, good luck in November. Now, there's no way Bernie would do this because he was already telling people in the middle of the race, if I lose, I'll support the Democratic nominee. Now do you see the problem with that? And now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing the same thing. In every interview she's giving, she's like, okay, so I'm definitely going to support the Democratic nominee. I'm definitely going to support Joe Biden. But man, do I need concessions. Concessions for what? You're, you have to withhold something you need to have something of value to them for them to give you anything. What's of value is your support. If you pledge your support up front, they're not going to give you Dickie McGee's axe. How do I need to explain this to people? Like, this should be obvious. You can't say, I'm definitely going to vote for you, and by the way, here's my list of stuff I want you to do. No, you have to be like, I'm going to withhold my support. I'm not going to vote for you if you don't do the things I want. Now, you say to me, well, Kyle, Joe could just walk away from that. Except... He can't, <laughs> because Bernie represents a 30% chunk of the Democratic voting base. He's got all the young people. Joe got waxed, son, in like the under 45 demographic. It's like all of Generation X and all of the millennial generation that, you know, 
voted for Bernie. So, I mean, he's not that dumb where he thinks he could really put his middle finger up to all Gen Xers and all millennials. So I think he really would have had to do it. Worst case scenario, guys, is I could see Joe Biden and his team taking a look at the 10 executive orders, crossing out the five that they think go too far, and saying, okay, here, here are the five ones that we will do. You have my word, Bernie. I'll do them in the first 100 days if I get elected. And we're all set. And then Bernie can come out to people who are so cynical and beaten down like myself and go, bro, okay, Kyle, you say you don't want to vote for him. You do realize what you're leaving on the table, right? He just said he would take marijuana off of Schedule 1 and he would legalize it federally with an executive order in the first 100 days. He just said it. I have his name in writing saying he's going to do it in the first 100 days. It's right here. So, okay, you're not going to vote for him? Look at what you're going to miss out on. He would have had an argument to make to me. Now he's got nothing. Because even the things that they say, oh, yeah, I agree with you on that, there's nothing tangible. There's nothing uh, on paper. There's no time limit. There's no, that's what I'm saying. If you say within the first 100 days, I will do this as an executive order so I know that it's not contingent upon Congress blocking it, well, then you, now you have my interest. Now you have my interest a lot. But he didn't do that. He didn't do any of that. And so guess what we got? And I, honestly, I think this is another insulting thing. Task forces. Joe, you're damn near 80 years old, son. You don't need a damn task force to figure out whether or not you want to do something. Come on, man. You're either for it or you're not. We know the policies we're talking about here. So let's talk about them. Are you going to support it or are you not going to support it? Because this is all, if you want my vote, if you want my support, it's going to depend on some things. It's not unconditional, son. But Bernie has gone down that, you know, cuck path of like, Trump is so bad, he's so bad, he's so really, really, really bad that no matter what, we have to support the Democrat. And so when they give us Dickie McGee's act, I have to take it. Well, you just squandered all of the leverage that you had, and you did have leverage. You did have leverage. When you got 30% of the party in a movement at your every beck and call, you have leverage. And if you think maybe I'm being too much of a hard ass and playing too much hardball here, oh, please. I know people within the campaign at the top echelons who are like, Bernie should have done exactly the thing that you're saying that he should do. Exactly the thing that you're, the exact format. Here's 10 executive orders. Here it is. You have to do these in the first 100 days or good luck, and I'm going to walk away. But see, in order to do that, you have to be willing to walk away. And Bernie's not, because Bernie's a team player. Rah, rah, Democrats, yay! Well, what happens when the Democrats give you nothing? What about that? Well, then they just go back into the Trump bad mode, and that's it. Well, congratulations. Very, very high-minded. Oh, Trump is bad. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. I couldn't tell. Jesus Christ, this is like dealing with children. This is a game. This is a scam. This is a ruse. Again, I think Bernie thinks he's doing the right things, but this is the weakest thing I've ever seen in my life. How are you going to run in 2016, lose, get nothing, build a movement, almost win, and then there are no, there are no actual do or dies, there are no actual staples that you're asking for to support Biden. There's no there there. There's no like, you have to do this or I'm gone. It's just like, oh, we made some task forces and oh, here's a couple issues where Joe pretends to agree with me. Insulting, man. It really is insulting. And now I can't wait for the nonstop, uh, you know, pandering on cultural issues, which by the way, might actually hurt Biden more than help Biden. What would help Biden is real, you know, real concessions to the left on policy and economics. 
that would help Biden. What would hurt Biden is the, you know, what he's about to do, which is overly woke signaling nonsense. Here, let's get a stream going, you know, with a bunch of uh, whatever famous artists. <laughs> oh, look at, oh, look at me. It's like Bernie did the other. I'm hanging out with Cardi B. It's Cardi B. This is the young people, Cardi B. This is what they're doing. This is how, what they think of you. This is how they treat you and every issue you care about. God, it's really depressing, man. It's really sad. It really is. All right, so you guys know this is what I thought Bernie should have done. And by the way, I really think you're deluding yourself if you think he wouldn't have gotten at least five awesome executive orders out of this. Executive orders that you could have made so good that even I would be on board. And I'd say, you know what? Riding with Biden, son. Certainly possible. You cer- it's certainly possible you could have gotten me there. You want to know why? Because I'm reasonable. I'm not, a lot of people misinterpret things I say on this show. And they think, like, he's so unreasonable. He's got these list of demands, and if they don't meet it, that's it. Well, I told you guys my purity test. Yes, I have five very important issues to me. But I said one or two of those issues, I just have to be convinced you'll fight for them, and you're good. You're good. In the case of Biden, since I know he's not going to do any of the issues I care about, I made an extra exception. Pick Bernie or Nina for VP, and I'm there. So don't say it's – I actually have a very, 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 very simple pass to test. Simple pass to test. Simple test to pass. I'm dyslexic. Like, it's very straightforward. My standards are very reasonable, and he still can't pass them, you know? And Bernie was just not capable of approaching this the right way where he could have gotten people like me on board. But the good news I have for everybody, or just the news, depending on how you view it, is that I don't even know if it'll matter, man, because this, this election, Biden can win this election no matter what. Like, it's possible he could win this election. It could go Trump. It could go Biden. We got a real race on, race on our hands. Because as much as Biden is losing with people like me, Biden is winning with the suburban CNN, MSNBC, drunk, middle-aged voter. So, but there's a weird kind of realignment happening. And in this weird kind of realignment, like the economic left, the young left, is just being left as roadkill. <laughs> and we're, we're not part of any of the realignment. We, it's a boomer country, and it's probably never been more so that. All right, next. Journalist David Dayen of the American Prospect uncovered just how much of a scam the corona bailout bill really is. Your coronavirus check is coming. Your bank can grab it. Regulators have given banks the green light to use stimulus funds to pay off debts that individuals owe them. This week, the $1,200 CARES Act Payments Congress approved in response to the coronavirus crisis will begin to appear in Americans' bank accounts. The funds will be wired to eligible recipients who previously authorized the IRS to post their refunds or Social Security payments through direct deposit. This will speed relief far more quickly than having the IRS mail a check, which could take up to five months. But the money may not make it into the hands of those who need it to pay bills, buy food, or just survive amid mass unemployment and widespread suffering. Individuals 
might first have to fend off their own bank, which has just been given the power to seize the $1,200 payment and use it to pay off outstanding debt. Congress did not exempt CARES Act payments from private debt collection, and the Treasury Department has been reluctant to exempt them through its rulemaking authority. This means that individuals could see their payments transferred from their, their hands into the hands of their creditors, potentially leaving them with nothing. Congratulations to all the, uh, the lefties who supported this. Congratulations. Um, even if this was a genuine provision where these people, everybody just got their $1,200, even if that's the case, I still don't think it was worth it because you got a $4.5 trillion bailout of corporate America with no strings attached, no oversight. So you can't just let corporate America loot the treasury and say, hey, we got some crumbs for regular people in response. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. And what we've seen here, and it's coming, becoming more and more obvious to people now, is that this was just like Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, which she describes, that you take a tragedy and you, you know, implement a pre-existing ag agenda in the fog of the tragedy. So you say, oh my God, look at this terrible thing that's happened. We have to address it. It's an emergency. It's dangerous. Here's what we need to do. And what you're doing is a bait and switch because you're just doing the thing that you always wanted to do. And in our case, it's codify corporate socialism as far as the eye can see. So, and this is not even capitalism, by the way, because in capitalism, if you fail, you fail. This is corporate socialism. The companies that have already made it to the top of the hierarchy, they're saying, we're not going anywhere because we can just loot the treasury. So when... When the economy is doing well, privatize the gains. When the economy is doing poorly, socialize the losses. And that's why we've seen there was a, an image that went viral, and it showed jobless claims hit an all-time high. At the same time, the market had the biggest rebound week. Why? Because there's a disconnect. The market, is not, the market does not reflect how your average person is doing. But it's a double whammy, because when the market does well, it's not that the people do well. It's that the rich do well, and the owners of the companies do well, the shareholders do well. But when the market goes bad, you do suffer. Regular people do suffer. So it's a double whammy in how it's not indicative of how you're doing, how the average person is doing. But, you know, now look, look at this scam that they ran. What was the point? What was the point of passing a bill that gives the $1,200 to people if debt collector, if most people have debt, and the debt collectors could just jack the $1,200 payments. What was the point? What was the point? The point was, I guess, to just give the money to the debt collectors. That was the point. But, you know, you do realize just because you, you're legislating as if a problem isn't there, it doesn't mean that there's not actually a problem there. That these people who are hungry are still hungry. These people who can't pay the bills still can't pay the bills. These people who lost their jobs just lost their jobs. Guys, we went 3 million jobs lost the first uh, week of this crisis. Then it was six million. Then it was another six million. Now we lost another five million. The economy is slowly imploding. It's actually not so slowly. It's rapidly imploding. We're looking at a Great Depression-like scenario, and even the window dressing crumbs that they're giving people are not actual crumbs. Even that has loopholes and scams in it. Your government is totally captured by the wealthy and corporations. And even the lefties who are supposed to be fighting and doing their thing, they get duped quicker than anybody has ever been duped ever. They are such marks. 
They are such marks. The idea that they didn't realize, yo, dog, you could hold this bill up, Bernie, in the Senate. You could hold this up and say, I'm not, I will block this unless and until you give people a permanent UBI. They would have given it. They absolutely would have given it. Why? Because the corporations really were imploding and really do want that money. They would have given up a hell of a lot, but instead we got nothing. We got nothing for the complete corporate takeover of our government. We got nothing for codified corporate socialism. Really embarrassing. I mean, it really is. This is Banana Republic-like stuff, man. Meanwhile, you got other nations giving people 80% of their wages and making sure nobody gets fired and it's just furloughed. We don't e- Guys, we don't even have a, a situation here where you could just get health care. Like, oh, you probably have to go bankrupt for that, too. Oh, man. And the next thing is, watch. You, watch. Since Bernie didn't win... Now it's Biden. Biden is a, is a committed neoliberal corporatist on economic stuff. So what's he going to do? Well, where can you make your concessions? If you're committed to neoliberal corporatism because you're bought by donors, where do you make concessions to the left? Where are they going to go? Cultural issues. Cultural issues. Come on, come on, Joe. Let's be fake woke together. So as, uh, you know, as Rome is crumbling around us, and they can't even give a, a straight-up $1,200 payment in a crisis, um, at least Joe Biden will probably put his gender pronouns in his bio. So there's always that. All right, I'm going to take a break when I come back. Brianna... Brianna Joy Gray, um, there were some shots taken at her, and we're going to defend her, and um, much more. So don't go anywhere, guys. Happy to be back, and I will be right back shortly.
I'm back, y'all. I am back. All right, so... Still got a lot of stuff to get to since I was gone for quite a bit. Um, But all these stories are top-notch. No lower-level, no lower-graded stories here today. That is for damn sure. Um... All right, so we're going to talk about Brianna Joy Gray, who I often call Brianna Gray Joy because I'm a moron. And I'm dyslexic, as you all know, apparently. I used to be back when I was a kid. Pop pops in every now and then. So that's cool. Um, yet again, I'm going to have to side against America's dad because what he said is not right. Here we go. Bernie Sanders talked to the Associated Press and um, let's just say shots fired at people who are his supporters who will not vote for Joe Biden. So here's what they say. Bernie Sanders said Tuesday that it would be irresponsible for his loyalists not to support Joe Biden, warning that progressives who sit on their hands in the months ahead would simply enable President Donald Trump's re-election. And lest there be any question, the 78-year-old Vermont senator confirmed that, quote, it's probably a very fair assumption that he would not run for president again. He added with a laugh, one can't predict the future. Sanders, who suspended uh, his presidential bid last week, spoke at length about his decision to endorse Biden, his political future, and the urgent need to unify the Democratic Party during an interview with the Associated Press. He railed against the Republican president, but also offered pointed criticism at his own supporters who have so far resisted his vow to do whatever it takes to help Biden win the presidency. He seemed to distance himself from his campaign's former National Press Secretary, Brianna Joy Gray, when asked about her recent statement on social media refusing to endorse Biden. Quote, she is my former press secretary, not on the payroll. Sanders noted. A spokesman later clarified that all campaign staffers were no longer on the payroll as of Tuesday, though they will get a severance check in May. Sanders says his his supporters have a simple choice now that Biden has emerged as a presumptive nominee. Do we be as active as we can in electing Joe Biden and doing everything we can to move Joe and his campaign in a more progressive direction, or do we choose to sit it out and allow the most dangerous president in modern American history to get reelected? He continued, I think that it's irresponsible for anybody to say, well, I disagree with Joe Biden, I disagree with Joe Biden, and therefore I'm not going to be involved. Yeah, okay, so here's the deal, man. What was irresponsible, Bernie, is giving away all of the tremendous leverage that you had for nothing concrete. That was irresponsible. What's irresponsible is squandering this amazing movement and all of its energy that you have. Now, everybody needs to understand something. I'm not, I'm not going scorched earth on Bernie because he's endorsing Biden. Okay? I'm not, that's not my, my bone to pick with him. Um, I think he genuinely thinks, hey, man, this is the best path forward. And I've seriously, soberly, and objectively analyzed it, and I think this is the best, best path forward. So I'm not mad about that. But what I am mad about is him using the word irresponsible. 
as if anybody who disagrees with, with uh, the calculations that he made are wrong. I won't, I won't proselytize, and I won't evangelize, and I'm not going to be zealous about not voting. So I'm not trying to convert people to non-voting. But you will hear me respond when I think people are unfairly criticizing my position of not voting. And Brianna, by the way, I have no idea if she's actually, when the time comes, will she actually not vote for Biden? I don't know. You're going to have to ask her. She might change her mind. Um, But I can only speak for myself here. But in my mind, when Bernie used that word irresponsible, man, was I triggered. Because I genuinely think the way in which Bernie is doing this transition to supporting Biden, it's incredibly irresponsible. Because as I described in a previous segment, here's what he could have done, guys. He could have, in all these meetings with Biden, no doubt he's been having a lot of them, he could have said, Joe, listen, man, we're friends. By the way, I think they are genuine friends. We're friends, um, but we do have big disagreements politically. I made a list of 10 executive orders that I think you can do that are very, very strong progressive executive orders, but I think you can do them. And even though we have some big disagreements, these ones will be all right. Ten amazing executive orders, put them on Biden's desk and say, listen, man, if you commit to doing all these within the first 100 days, you have my support. And I'll do everything I can to help you get elected. If you say you don't want to do them, good luck in November. I'm going to have to walk away. Now, Bernie didn't do that. And he wouldn't do that because he already early on pledged his support to the Democratic nominee. I think that was a mistake. I would go as far as calling that irresponsible. Because now, the only move you have, badger this movement of people into supporting Biden without really, you know, bringing them over with solid reasons. So that's why you're going to have some people in the movement go, no, I'm good. Like me. I'm not going to do it. Because, Bernie, it was never about you. There was a time when Bernie knew this. It used to be, <laughs> it used to be, not me, us. Now it's not us, him, him meaning Biden. So it's not about you, Bernie. So if you, if somebody supported your movement because they support Medicare for all, you can't get mad at them when they're not going to go vote for Biden. Because Biden does it for Medicare for all. You see what I'm saying? Like, there are issues that are unique to Bernie that people were like, I love that. I'm in. And then you can't say it's irresponsible when the whole reason they supported you was something that Biden is pledging not to do. That's not irresponsible. That's very straightforward. That's very understandable. That's very rational for them to say, sorry, I'm not going to partake in it. So, you're just not going to get people by saying, oh, this guy's not as bad. <laughs> wow. Um, the other thing I'll say is, for Bernie to word to use irresponsible, what's irresponsible was repeatedly telling reporters that Biden could beat Trump at a time when Biden started shellacking him. Like, if there was one thing Bernie couldn't do and win the race, It was totally conceded on the issue of electability after Biden trounced him on Super Tuesday. And the reason why Biden trounced him, and we know because we have polling on this, is that there was a wild swing in the electability perception. And 70 percent of voters said Biden's more electable versus Trump. And they say, that's why I'm supporting Biden. Now, 
if you're really trying to win, if you're really going to be responsible in the position that you're in running for president, Bernie, you know what you do? In all the interviews right after you lose on Super Tuesday, you say, Biden can't be Trump. That's why I'm running. Only I could be Trump. This guy is a lot like Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton just lost in 2016. Remember, Hillary was the safe option. What happened? She lost. You want to go with the safe option again? Go with Biden and, and you'll see Trump will win. You got to vote for me. I'm like FDR. FDR won four times. So I'm the actual safe option. He's the fake safe option. He can't be Trump. Guys, he's struggling. He can't be Trump. Imagine if he said that. Biden's struggling, guys. Who are we kidding? Imagine if Bernie said those words. He doesn't have to say what I would say. (laughs) But if she's just like, I don't know, man. He's struggling to me. So what was irresponsible was totally conceding on the issue of electability when that was the main issue driving the race. And it was especially irresponsible given the fact that you had working men and women all across this country donating their last $20 in you and their, their little bit of hope they had left they invested in Bernie Sanders' campaign. And now you turn around when you endorse Biden and you like look down on the people who aren't immediately following you. Oh, please the hell out of here, man. Get the hell out of here. I'm open to, if people want to make reasonable arguments when it comes to Biden, I'm listening. I'm listening. (laughs) I I hear you. You know, do I think Joe Biden is definitely better when it comes to the courts? No question. I take a centrist on the court over a far right person any day of the week. Do I think Joe Biden is better when it comes to climate change? Yes. There are some issues where Biden is clearly better. We can have those conversations. But if you're going to bring people in, you're going to bring people in like that, being honest and open. You're not going to bring people in with the badgering and the looking down at them and insulting them and shaming them and calling them irresponsible when Brianna put aside a year of her life to do absolutely everything she possibly could to get Bernie elected. Let me tell you something. Bernie Sanders, what did he say when Elizabeth Warren was not endorsing him immediately after she dropped out? What did Bernie say? Hey, guys, come on now. Everybody relax. Let's give her some space. Let's give her some time to think. At some point, she'll make her mind up, and we have to respect the decision. You couldn't say the same thing for somebody who, who put everything on the line for you, Bernie? Shame on you, man. Shame on you. And everybody knows I'm a, I love Bernie. I love Bernie. Always have, always will. And he awakened a lot of people. And for that, we owe a debt of gratitude to him forever. But let's keep it real. What he's doing here and what he's saying here is flat out wrong. It's flat out wrong. And um, let's just say he might call what people like me are doing irresponsible. But if I was in a conversation with him about him and I was giving him my reasoning, he wouldn't have a rebuttal. He wouldn't have a rebuttal. Because, yes, Biden is just that bad. If you want to make the argument Biden's not as bad as Trump, I think that's probably true, but Biden is still beyond the pale. That, I think, is true. Okay, next. Noam Chomsky weighed in on Bernie Sanders' campaign 
Um, and he made some interesting comments. Let's take a look.
this is it's like a very social democratic leaning generation because of everything that's happened politically. We have a lot more in common with FDR's politics than Bill Clinton's politics. Um, so in that he's successful. In shifting the realm of debate and discussion, he's successful. But in getting power, it's quite the opposite. And I would argue, as I've done almost every segment this show, that um, he's really squandering his movement's power at the moment and the leverage that he has. I think you're kidding yourself if you think with the 30% chunk of the Democratic primary base, you're kidding yourself if you think he doesn't have leverage. He absolutely could put 10 executive orders on Biden's desk and say, all these in the first 100 days or I'm out, or good luck in November, I'm not going to help you. And Biden would really have no choice. Biden would either say, okay, or he'd say, listen, man, here are the five I could do. I can't do these other five. And then you take the deal. Okay, cool, great. Those five executive orders, let's shake on it. Let me get your name in writing. Now you got my uh, full support. And by the way, if they were to do that, I guarantee you, I guarantee you it would only be like single digits of Bernie supporters who don't um, vote for Biden and help Biden. So maybe like 6% of Bernie supporters would be like, I'm out. But if he were to get really awesome executive orders, a guarantee from him, then, you know, I think now it'll probably be more like 15 or 20% of Bernie supporters who are not going to support Biden. Maybe even a little more, maybe 25%. So um, Bernie, while he's great at the movement angle of politics, and while he's great at messaging and inspiring, um, we got to keep it real in that he really could have won this election, and he didn't. And so I think he's very bad at making adjustments on the fly. Um, And honestly, I think he's a little soft. I do. He wasn't willing to say the things he needed to say or do the things he needed to do. When his boot was on Biden's neck, he took it off. Whereas he could have pressed down harder. And that's what I was pushing for him to do. That's what many people were pushing for him to do. Um, He could have made the electability argument and said, no, Biden can't win. Instead, he was telling everybody Biden can win. Um, I would have compared him to Hillary Clinton. I would have not disciplined my own surrogates like Zephyr Teachout when she correctly said Biden is corrupt. David Schroeder, same thing, Biden's corrupt. And, and Bernie went out there and apologized to Biden, even though Biden's corrupt. So listen, Bernie is soft. And he also genuinely likes Joe Biden in a way he didn't like Hillary Clinton. Um, and so... He wasn't able to do the things that he needed to do to win. And in the process, he let down his own supporters. Um, but the, the successes you can say he had are creating more versions of him, which is definitely good and it's nothing to scoff at. But I think you're kind of deluding yourself if, if you're comfortable with just that. Because, no, this time, in my mind, we were playing a win then. And the fact that we didn't, I'm not going to come out here and tell you guys it's all peaches, it's all rosy, it's all dandy, it's all, you know, like this was the goal. No. The goal was to win, and he didn't do that. And we have to be honest about those shortcomings in order to adjust moving forward.
Trump and the GOP are making some moves that are politically clever and I think substantively correct. So here's Trump on the issue of student loans. Today, the Department of Education is also announcing the availability of more than $6 billion in emergency grant funding to assist college students impacted by the cancellation of classes and the suspension of housing. Uh, a lot of people had a lot of things suspended. Housing is one of them. Previously, we waived student loan payments for six months. So student loan payments have been waived for six months. So we'll discuss it after that. They go further. Now, here's what he's going to do. Here's what he's going to do. Because he actually has, despite what many people will tell you, he has good political instincts, Trump does. Um, he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about that. He's going to keep bringing it up. You know what else he did? This is a story that just came out and people on the left were melting down. He's putting his name on the $1,200 checks that are being sent out to people. Now, again, you might flip out if you're on the left, but why? Because the real reason is people know, oh, my God, people are going to get those checks. They're going to see his name. They're going to give him all the credit for giving him those checks, and that's going to make them like him more and want to vote for him. That's right. So what Donald Trump does is relentlessly makes his own case, and he never stops. Even when I think it's like clear that he's so wrong about something, he's just like, nope, I'm just going to pretend like I'm not, and I'm just going to plow forward. I'm just going to keep telling you that I'm right. And that is a political skill, and I'm not kidding when I say he's better at it than anybody I've ever seen, that his skill is just a relentless marketing. Now, I do think that there's, I do think that people who hit a certain level of intelligence see through it, but on the overwhelming majority of people, if you go out there and you keep telling people, it's great, it's tremendous, we're doing it's an unbelievable job, this is the best job you've ever seen, this, it's perfect. How many things has he described as perfect? Now, you hear that, and I hear that, and you go, come on, that's ridiculous. But a lot of people hear that and say, well, if he's saying it's perfect, it's at the very least good. Like, he's at least doing a good job, right? So it's, and it is a Republican trick that does go back, you know, decades, where they stake out the most extreme position, and the reaction is not... Like when they kept saying Obamacare death panels, Obamacare death panels, Obamacare death panels, you and I went, that's absurd. But a lot of people were like, damn, they're saying it's so, 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 so bad. Even if they're wrong, it's at least still just bad, right? Like they're saying it's so bad. Maybe it's not so bad, but it's still just bad, I guess, right? And this is what they do. They, they're their own best friend in a way that Democrats are not their own best friend. The Democrats are embarrassing. So as Biden's out there promising to veto Medicare for all and talking about means testing everything until the cows come home, um, you got Trump who's like, we're going to have your treatment for COVID is going to be covered. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be amazing. Now, to be fair, Biden actually says that too from time to time, and he's tweeted it. Um, but Trump on some issues is going to outleft Biden in the same way that he outlefted Hillary. And you're seeing some of that here. A lot of this is brought about as a matter of necessity because of the, the pandemic we have going on. But remember the Donald Trump Super Bowl ad. What did he do in the Super Bowl ad? He ran an ad bragging about pardoning Alice Johnson, this sweet, like, grandmother lady 
who, for a nonviolent drug offense, got a life sentence. Kim Kardashian took that to Trump. Trump listened, pardoned her, and he's going to brag about that. He does, he does, listen, Trump knows his right-wing base is not going anywhere. They love him. They absolutely adore him. Adore him. So since that base is not going anywhere, you could, you could ideologically be like, oh, look, I'm to the left of Biden on some issues. And your base is still going to be like, Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump is amazing. The core issues to his base are like tax cuts and the wall. And Trump is always for tax cuts and the wall. They know that, they know that, they know that. So if on ancillary issues to them, like pardoning a sweet grandmother lady, where's the downside for Trump to outlet Biden on these things? There is none. It's all upside. So he's smart enough to do that. But now, see, this is interesting. Now you're starting to see some Republicans kind of embrace the Trump version of conservatism. So it used to be the case that everybody in, in D.C., all these politicians, were Mitch McConnell conservatives, were Mitt Romney-like conservatives, Newt Gingrich-like conservatives, John Boehner-like conservatives. And what does that mean? Deeply establishment. Well, now, funny enough, you are starting to see some flavor, some variety of a populist conservatism. Now, again, I want to caution everybody because a lot of it is just the aesthetic. A lot of it is just the branding. But every now and then, it'll go beyond that. And like Trump actually did the thing with the student loan payments. That's real. So who else is doing it? His name is Josh Hawley. And it, look at this. GOP Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri proposes a Denmark-style plan where the U.S. government pays 80% of workers' wages. Beginning immediately, the federal government should cover 80% of wages for workers at any U.S. business up to the national median wage until this emergency is over. So that's amazing. That's amazing. So what you have there is kind of like the return of the paleoconservative. That's the Pat Buchanan version of conservatism, which is, you know, protectionist on trade and let's protect American jobs. And this proposal, I mean, just call it what it is. It's an economically left proposal. That's what that is. And you have a Republican pushing it. At the same time, you have like Nancy Pelosi. She was one of the people who said, no, no, no. We need to means test this, uh, you know, this payment that we want to give people for the pandemic. She said that. Now, don't get it twisted. Steve Mnuchin, who's a Goldman Sachs lackey, the Treasury Secretary, he was like, oh, totally, I'm down. Because originally Steve Mnuchin came out and said, UBI, we're looking to get, give uh, you know, money, to pe- money to people quickly. And um, Pelosi was like, well, let's means test it. And Mnuchin, my point is Mnuchin wasn't like, no, I think we should not means test it. No, he's more than willing to means test it. So the devil is always in the details, and I wouldn't be surprised if this idea gets watered down a thousand ways to Sunday, and it's just a branding exercise. But it does say something that now you have the Democratic Party has become so overwhelmingly and openly the party of the well-off suburbanite. And so you have so much neoliberalism coming out of the Democratic Party, and you have flashes in the Republican Party of some degree of populism. 
Now, of course, the downside to that is more often than not, it's just branding on the Republican side. But beyond that, look at all the other issues where they're still insanely dead wrong. Like, they'll never give an they're, they'll be super hardline on immigration, super hardline on, you know, gay rights, family values, all like the social issues stuff. And so there is like a deal with the devil to be made there. <laughs> but point is, there's a weird, it's, I don't think we're going to get a full realignment, but there's the weird, like, I don't know, bubblings of a realignment that pop up every now and then. And it's like, well, what if the Republicans fought for the working class? Because as of right now, and you all know this, nobody fights for the working class. Nobody does. The Republican Party is still largely owned by big business, and the Democratic Party is still largely owned by big business. And you get you know, a few interesting and unique people on the fringes um, who are somewhat principled and ideologically driven and not like complete corporate sellouts. But um, needless to say, what Trump did with the student loan thing and what Josh Hawley is proposing with the government paying 80% of workers' wages, um, that's definitely a step in the right direction. And I'd be happy if we had two parties that were openly populist and fighting for working people. But unfortunately, what we have now and what I think we'll continue to have is neither party being populist and fighting for working people, but every now and then you get both of the parties trying to pretend through branding that they are that. But when we're lucky enough to get a win, like we're getting now with the student loans, man, I'll take it. I'll take it. We need to go much further, you know, and... They need to do it, should do a permanent UBI with what's going on now, but let's take our wins where we can get them. And um, this is my, I'm screaming at the Democrats to wake up. Because if you're getting, if, if Trump on any issues is outlefting you, you're pathetic. And you're making it so it's very, very possible that he gets reelected. And you're going to own that. Okay, next. <clears throat> next. Chamis Palahapataya. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but I apologize. Uh, forgive me, I tried there. Um, he's a Canadian venture capitalist. And he's the founder and CEO of Social Capital. Um, He was one of the early executives of Facebook. And so he's very well off. He's um, part owner of the Golden State Warriors as well. And he went on CNBC and dropped an amazing truth bomb in this clip. And this clip went really viral. It's about the, the COVID bailout package. You keep saying propping up zombie companies. Are, are you are you arguing to let airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how, how does that make sense in the broader scheme of, of the economy? Because it's not – because when you look at what it means – this is why I'm saying, like, this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy. Right? If anything, what happens is 
the people who have the pensions inside those companies, the employees of these companies, end up owning more of the companies. The people that get wiped out are the speculators that own the unsecured tranches of debt or the folks that own the equity. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. But the employees don't get wiped out. The pensions don't typically get wiped out. Why does anybody, why? Does, I just understand, why does anybody deserve, using your word, to get wiped out from a, a, a crisis created like, like this? How does anybody like, deserve to get wiped don't. out? Well, but, but, but just be clear, like, who are we talking about? We're talking about a hedge fund that serves a bunch of billionaire family offices? Who cares? Let them get wiped out. Who cares? They don't get the summer in the Hamptons? Who cares? I mean, there are but people, if you get you don't think the employees, on, Scott. You don't think you the employees of these companies table? own stocks? I mean, own their stocks? Right. Own the company's stocks? You can, you can look on Bloomberg and you can see what percentage of these companies are typically owned by. These, these things are owned by BlackRock. These things are owned by these huge, you know, amorphous organizations, ultimately downstream, and the employee owns a few hundred dollars or a few thousand, thousand dollars of shares. Why does understand so that point that, you it's could, like a natural disaster? Why does anybody deserve to get wiped out? Wouldn't that be immoral in and of itself? No, because what's happening right now is what I'll tell you is on Main Street today, people are getting wiped out. And right now, rich CEOs are not, boards that have horrible governance are not, Hedge funds are not. People are. Six million people just this week alone basically saying, holy mackerel, I don't know how I'm going to make you know, my own expenses for the next few weeks, days, months. So it's happening today to individual Americans. And what we've done is disproportionately prop up and protect you know, poor-performing CEOs, companies, and boards. And you have to wash these people out. So that was absolutely awesome. Um, but here's the thing, guys, and this is the part of the conversation nobody's saying. This clip went viral. Everybody, you know, it was all over my Twitter feed. People were loving it and talking about it. Now, I don't know this gentleman's politics. I really don't. But he could be a total free market libertarian making that argument. See, everybody's listening to that and thinking, like, oh, it's definitely like a lefty because he's saying, you know, stick it to the owners or whatever. But what people need to understand is, yes, you can be a lefty and make that case. In fact, you should. But it's also the case that a free market libertarian would be like, okay, so your business went out, tough cookies. It's called the free market. That's how it works. You see what I'm saying? That You can make that argument from that perspective as well. It doesn't have to be a lefty. He's just like, okay, well, we have this thing called the free market, and, you know, we're hitting a downturn. And you guys are not staying afloat, so it is what it is. In the same way that, you know, your local dry cleaner might go out of business, the government doesn't rush in and bail them out, so why the hell should the government rush in and, and bail out the airlines as well? And then this guy's like, well, you know, hold on, that seems a little out there. But his point is, it's not like it, the failing company, it, it goes through a, a managed bankruptcy where, you know, they figure out exactly what to do with it and who takes a haircut. And so we have a process. And, you know, I, I think that what he's saying is totally reasonable. You could take his approach or, you know, what I've been arguing for is, I don't know if you'd say it's the polar opposite, uh, but it's temporarily nationalizing the companies, which is like, okay, so yes, we get it. We're hitting a rough patch. 
through no fault of this company's own. Like, they didn't do anything wrong. It's just that the entire economy is grounding to a halt because of a pandemic. Okay, so what do you do in that situation? Well, we want to keep payroll going. You know, we want everything to go without a hiccup and, and to weather this storm, no matter how long it lasts. They probably don't have the cash reserves to make that happen. Um, so just temporarily nationalize it. The government picks up the payroll, runs everything. And then when the economy at some point gets back to some semblance of normal, then you turn it back over to private hands. But yeah, he can, he can make this argument from a right-wing perspective or a left-wing perspective. But what he's saying is what we do now makes no sense because it's corporate socialism. You go in there and you bail out the investors. And the whole point of these investors was supposed to be like, oh, these are like the savvy, most intelligent guys in the room. It's like, well, okay, if they were the most intelligent guys in the room, then they wouldn't like perpetually screw up every single thing they do. But what happens is they do screw up everything, and then the government always rushes in and bails them out. So, you know, if you were to bail out anybody, obviously you should bail out the people. I mean, that's, to me, that makes all the sense in the world because we want everybody to be okay during this crisis. We want everybody to make sure they could eat, to make sure they could pay whatever bills remain. Um, so I'm a big proponent of bailing out the people, but also temporarily nationalize at the same time, because I think that's the only way you weather the storm um, and keep everything running relatively the same. But his point is, no, if you just let him fail and let him go through bankruptcy, it's not like the workers are going to be the ones taking the brunt of the pain. Um, it'll actually be the investors. It'll actually be, you know, the people with the money, the billionaires, and who cares if, if, if they're hurt, if they're in trouble. And he's certainly right about that, that, you know, they should be your last concern. Like what, nobody can have in, an adjustment to their lifestyle at this point in time? They want regular people to, you know, have to adjust their lifestyles and, and just live off less. But the billionaires, they're the ones that get the blank checks from the government. The investors, they're the ones who get saved no matter what. And he's pointing out the absurdity of that. So, yeah, I think he's right. But I also think there's an interesting conversation to be had as whether you take the right-wing approach or the left-wing approach to this. The right-wing approach being, hey, you went belly up, so it's going to go through a managed bankruptcy. And, you know, we'll figure out the terms. We figure out who take the haircut. We figure out how we keep moving it forward. Um, but his point is, you're not going to – it's not like airlines will no longer exist if you let these airlines fail. That's his point. And I think that's a fair point. But again, do we go in the right-wing direction of, hey, you failed, and so go through the managed bankruptcy? Or do you go in the left-wing direction of, hey, you failed us through no fault of your own, so let's temporarily nationalize it? But I have a feeling him and I would ultimately have similar terms, even if he has a right-wing approach to this, because what he's saying is, even if it goes through the bankruptcy, the only people who will get hurt are the investors, and I'm fine with that. And what I would say is, if, even if we temporarily nationalize these companies, yeah, I mean, those, you cut them out of the process completely. You know, they're not going to get a high return on investment or something like that. No. So um, ultimately, I think we would end up in a, in a similar place with our solutions. But one approach would be from the right, a, a very capitalist approach. And, you know, the other approach would be from the left, which would be a temporary nationalization approach. Um, either way, what we did is the exact wrong thing, which is rush in, give bailouts, but the bailouts don't have strong rules and terms, so people at the top swim in that bailout money, corporate socialism, it's 
socialism for the corporations, socialism for the top brass of the corporations. And then what they do is take the bailout money and fire people anyway and hurt the regular people anyway. So it's Naomi Klein shock doctrine. Use a, a tragedy and exploit it and implement your pre-existing agenda. And the pre-existing agenda of the corporatocracy is give us all the money, let us loot the treasury, give us all the power, and you shut up. All right, let's look at Trump's new anti-Biden ad. President Trump released a new anti-Biden ad. Well, actually, it's not so new anymore. This is from, uh, sorry, I got the wrong graphic over my shoulder. After being gone for so long, I forget how to do basic things. Here we go. Let me try that again. President Trump released a new anti-Biden ad. Um, Actually, it's not new. It came out maybe a week or two ago, but I haven't uh, touched it yet. So let's see what angle he went with to attack him. This is a fight. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia. Biden's son inked a billion dollar deal with a subsidiary of the Bank of China. China is going to eat our lunch. They're not bad folks, folks. Since the outbreak, the Communist Party has been mobilizing overseas organizations to buy local supplies and send them to China. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. What a beautiful history we wrote together. Granting all travel will not stop it. The president is right. The travel restriction on China, every public health official we've talked to said, bought the country time. That was a very smart move right there. Xenophobia. I complimented him on uh, on dealing with China. So what Trump is trying to do here is uh, first and foremost make sure he kind of pawns off responsibility for the pandemic. He wants to make clear, like it was China, it was China, it was China. Blame China, blame China, blame China, blame China. And the reason why he's so insistent on that is if people blame China, they will not view him as culpable for dragging his feet early on. Now, he tries to make the argument, well, I banned flights from coming from Wuhan early on, so would, like, I did act early. That's his you know, counter-argument to that as well. But the response to that is that's not – when you talk about pandemic preparedness, what we mean is you didn't stockpile the masks. You didn't stockpile the ventilators. You didn't get the wheels in motion as soon as you were hearing in January in briefings that there was this thing which might become a pandemic. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, he was warned by Alex Azar that we could have a pandemic, and he said he's overreacting. So, okay, the, the banning flights from Wuhan, I totally support that. There's a pandemic. Why wouldn't you? But that's not it. I mean, to only do that and then drag your feet on the more important aspects of public safety, inexcusable. So he doesn't want those conversations to happen about how he really, the fact that he fired the pandemic experts in 2018, that's, you know, unforgivable. Because pandemic preparedness, you could have way more deaths in the U.S. from a pandemic, and we already are seeing that, than you would have in war. Like, this is, we're going to see wartime level deaths, man. 
So to not be prepared for that, you're just not doing national security. This is a national security issue, and Trump failed it. Failed it. So the attack on Biden from this perspective, from this angle, is let me pawn off responsibility for the pandemic. So blame China, blame China, blame China, blame China, blame China. And then I'm going to try to link Biden to China by, you know, talking about previous deals that he made with China. So it's an interesting angle. I'm not sure how it's going to play out. I don't know if this is going to be as strong as Trump thinks it is. I'm not sure. Um, Because there's a possibility that people just kind of shrug and they're like, I don't really buy that Biden is a puppet of China. Like, that's a very strong possibility. And, but it's also possible, I don't know, people do say, because Biden has a long history, is pretty corrupt, and family members around him got wealthy off of his public profile and all that stuff. And, you know, you got the Burisma and a thousand other scandals, if you really wanted to dive into the details. It is possible that people, Trump succeeds in painting Biden in the same way he painted Hillary as, look, corrupt Hillary Foundation, look at or, uh, Clinton Foundation, look at everything that's going on. And this is the beginning of that. So it's not just hammering. They put in the little dig at the end on you know, his cognitive abilities, and I think Trump will continue to hammer him on that. But they're also trying to make the corruption you know, angle as, as well a thing here. And so I, there, he's not... He's going to hit him with everything, I think, long term. I don't know, like, is he going to keep hitting the China thing here and keep going down that path? And I don't know how politically wise that necessarily is, but I think he's going to give us a buffet of attacks on Biden from a thousand different angles because Biden is a target-rich environment. So we'll see, but, you know, they're already, uh, they're already starting to go at it here. Here's, you know, the dynamic in this race is going to be fascinating to watch because Biden really, he did well in the primary and he did well all because of like older, middle-aged and up suburbanites who came out to vote. So in other words, it's possible that the exact kind of campaign that I think is useless and stupid, that might be Biden's move. So what I mean by that is Biden goes all in with a campaign of how dare you, sir? Biden could go all in with like the, we're America. Did you know we're America? I know we're America. We're America. I love America. America. <laughs> so he could do that stuff. He could do the goofy, like, you know, faux patriotism. The goofy, like, this man is indecent and he's offensive. I'm offended. I'm offended. Return to normalcy. Pick me to return to normalcy. It's possible that that annoying, stupid way of running for office is going to work this year. Why? Because it kind of worked in the primary, kind of worked in the Democratic primary, and it could kind of work in the general too. So it'll be really fascinating to see the dynamic in this race. Because I get the sense Trump is going to be super aggressive And it's going to be real. Like, he's going to hit him hard one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it's still possible, even with Trump hitting Biden super hard, that voters are just like, nope, and they pick Biden. Definitely possible. Um, But it is also possible you are dealing with a guy who's in sharp cognitive decline. So it is possible that at some point people kind of wake up and they're like, no, he can't talk. 
and they go with Trump. So I don't know. We'll see. But they're already beginning to go at it with one another. I honestly can't wait till the debates. Those are going to be something else. All right, let's make fun of Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne Conway is a counselor to the president, and she went on Fox News to defend him, as she quite often does. But in the process, she slipped up and demonstrated her incredible level of ignorance. Not that it's the 19th strain of the... Oh, God. These are the people... She has power. These are the people with power. These are the people with power, man. Isn't it crazy that we're, we're talking about an administration that even as late as March, Trump was out there just comparing it to the flu? When the evidence is overwhelming that it's, it's a lot worse than the flu and the bodies are going to pile up a hell of a lot quicker, and none of us have immunity, and so, you know, so on and so forth. When this thing started, it's just ripping through the population. It's still ripping through the population. So it's just, you guys, you have all the power in the country right now. You can't, like, you can't mess up like that and say stuff like that. I mean, you want to talk about losing all confidence? It really is scary how brazen... A lot of these people are Larry Kudlow giving press conferences. Remember this in late February? Like, we have it uh, contained. It's at, um, it's at zero or close to zero. And this is all the time when it was just spreading everywhere. So they just say stuff. Like, you know, you think when you're younger and you watch these people, and they're, you know, they're out there with their suits and ties and they look really respectable and they start saying stuff, you're like, oh, they really got to see it. They don't have it together. They're... Politicians, to a large extent, are professional BSers. That's what they are to a large extent. Like, how good are you at BSing people? Oh, you're really good at it? Well, congratulations. You might run the country. Because you go out there and you give everybody, it's the veneer, it's the facade of like, of like, I got it, I got this under control. I got it on lock. That's what, that's what they do. That's what this is. But every now and then, that mask slipped hardcore right there. <laughs> That's a hard body slip, dog. This is COVID-19, not COVID-1. Oh, Kelly. 
by the way, what they're talking about is uh, Trump cutting funding to the World Health Organization there. Um, I don't know the exact reason he gave for doing it. I do know that the World Health Organization was either duped by China or in on the cover-up from China. When this started, when this pandemic started, China knew that there was human-to-human transmission pretty early on, and they, had, they lied for like a week or so that there wasn't human-to-human transmission. And they really covered it up in the early stages. And um, then when everything got out of control, it was too late and everybody was admitting, you know, what this thing really was. But the World Health Organization also at some point was like, there's no human-to-human transmission. So, you know, Trump and the U.S. are like, the World Health Organization is just acting like a puppet of China. So, and again, I, I don't know how true that is because it's possible that just World Health Organization was also duped by research coming out of China early on where they were saying like, oh, it's not that contagious or whatever. So I don't know, but in typical Trump fashion, I think he, this is an instance of you should reform the World Health Organization, but he wants to throw out the baby with the bathwater and be like, no, screw like, you know, screw the World Health Organization and screw, um, I guess, more broadly, the international community, because it's not, we're not the ones who are in control and we smell the foul play. So therefore just burn it all down. I think that when it comes to something like international relations, that's way too important and way too vital that you always have to have some line of communication open and you always have to have some nominal organization that we could do our best to try to make work in order to, um, you know, avoid worst case scenarios and and work with each other. So I wouldn't maybe go as far as Trump, but um, I understand the concern about how badly this was botched because I think there's a real concern there. But suffice to say, I don't, I don't have any faith in what this administration is doing and how they're always behind the eight ball and how every now and then they let you know just how clueless they are. The televangelist Kenneth Copeland is back. And he gave us another banger of a cure for COVID-19. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Standing in the office of the prophet of God, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. I execute judgment on you, Satan. You destroyer. You killer, you get out, you break your power, you get off this nation. I demand judgment on you. I demand, I demand, I demand a vaccination to come immediately. I call you done. I call you done, Lord. <laughs>
States of America is healed and well again. This guy is just endless entertainment. <laughs> Come on, bro. <laughs> he he was he blew up recently for doing this thing where he like blew away the virus. He was like, "I blow you." Easy there, Kenneth. <laughs> we don't need to know what's going on behind closed doors. Um, so that clip blew up, and everybody was laughing at it. But apparently, he's going at it every day. He's out there like, all right, today we got the real, the real right mix of words in order to defeat COVID-19. Because that's what this is. Every day he goes out there and he's like, if I say the right words, this is like, you know, some, like a witch doctor voodoo-like approach where he's like, if I say the right words, then I can defeat Satan and I can defeat the evil spirits that are obviously giving us COVID-19. Again, you know, it all comes back to the original question for me, and I pose it to you guys every day, um, every time we have a story like this, which is, uh, are they complete and utter utter charlatan frauds, or does he, to some extent, because I think it's a spectrum, does he drink his own Kool-Aid? Like, does he actually think, like, well, obviously, I'm blessed, and I'm touched by the Lord, duh, And I think that it might not be just an either-or. Like, it's not just charlatan or believes it. It's like, there really is a spectrum, I think. He might think, like, I haven't actually spoken to God, but I'm inspired by him. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. I would love to see some sort of psychological study and breakdown on all these guys, whoever it may be, Ted Haggard, um... John Hagee's dead now, but uh, Ted Haggard's one of them. Pat Robertson, obviously, is another one. There's a bunch of these televangelist guys who, uh, who've become very, I guess, popular over the years, but imagine being part of this guy's audience. <laughs> I would love to know what percentage of viewers are just totally down for this guy and are like, oh, that's my boy. Like, he's out there curing COVID every day. What are you doing, son? <laughs> so I lo- here are the parts that are cool. I execute judgment on you, COVID-19, <laughs> as if COVID-19 is like, I think we got to stop now. He said he did the judgment thing, so we're done, guys. Wrap it up. All right, guys, wrap it up. One RNA virus talking to all others. All right, guys, come on. What are we going to do? He executed judgment on us. We've been ordered a cease and desist letter from from the Sky Wizard. <laughs> um. I like when he says, I call you gone. I call you done. It is finished. Um, But there's one moment in there that led me to believe he caught wind of everybody making fun of him on social media. Because at one point, he slipped it in there. He said something like, I command a vaccine to be created. And I think that was like the, all right, all right, all right, you guys got me. (laughs) Like, obviously, what I'm doing here is silly. But, hey, if I acknowledge that vaccines exist, that vaccines are real, that vaccines help, then maybe I'll get people off my butt and I'll appear more serious. So he threw in the line about the vaccine. I seriously believe that that's, like, evidence of him catching wind of the fact that people were making fun of him the last time. He's like, all right, we got to make this, like, 8% 8% less crazy from the last time. So I'll throw in the line about the vaccine. 
Anyway, keep them coming, Kenneth. The more of these you do, the more I'll cover them. All right, let's talk about Pope Francis and what went on with him while I was gone. This story came out on Easter, but I wanted to make sure uh, that we got it in. So CNBC says, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, Pope Francis says it might be time for some sort of universal basic income. Quote, this may be the time to consider universal basic wage, to acknowledge and dignify the noble essential tasks, and to achieve the ideal of no worker without rights, Pope Francis said in a letter to the World Meeting of Popular Movements, an organization representing global grassroots organizations, published on Sunday via the Vatican. The Pope acknowledged that for many workers, the COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns are making it difficult, if not impossible, to earn money. So um, I think that's great that he's calling for this. And see, now we're at the stage of the crisis where among people, among people, because usually in, you know, top echelons of government, they're not, they don't sense the urgency as much as the people feel it. But among people, the so-called radical solutions are actually the common sense solutions. So nobody has a job and nobody has the money that they need and there's nothing they could do to fix that because of a pandemic. Just give them money. Okay, what's the easiest way to give them money? Just give them universal basic income every month. Send them some money. That's it. That's really, and, and I have to admit, you guys have heard me mention this before, but this has universal basic income leapfrogged so many issues during this pandemic in my own mind. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that is like literally the most straightforward thing you could do to help people during this crisis, literally. It's just like a recurring allowance, a universal basic income. I call it social security for all. Give everybody a social security check. And because um, it's necessary. This is what people need to get by. There's no way around it. So apparently the Pope had a similar enlightenment moment like I did that this should be one of the top issues. This absolutely should be one of our top issues because um, that alone can mitigate so many social ills and, and help a hell of a lot of people. So I'm happy that he's now uh, jumping in on this. Yes, you absolutely can say that Andrew Yang was one of the people who kind of sparked this and, and made it come into the public consciousness. And then it's slowly but surely been uh, growing as a, a more and more important issue. And now it really is in the spotlight. And um, I really wish that definitely in the last bailout, I think we could have gotten it, guys. We could have gotten it in the last corona package. If Bernie held up the bill and said, I'm not going to allow this to go on unless you give people $1,000 a month in perpetuity. Not even the duration of the crisis. Give everybody $1,000 a month full stop, as far as the eye could see, then, um, you know, I think we could have gotten it. I think they would have given in on that. I think they would have been like, what are we going to do? Because the corporations really wanted that bailout to pass. So could have used our leverage, but we didn't use it. But the upside, though, is that now you're seeing a hell of a lot more of this. People like Pope Francis, normies, 
you know, people who never would have considered this before, they would have thought it was an insane idea, are now like, it's obvious. Like, what do you mean? People need money. They can't get money. There's no way around it. Just give them the money. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Trump attempted to play doctor in one of his COVID press conferences, and uh, he hit a little a little roadblock here, a little speed bump. Take a look. When you get the enemy, they develop drugs like the antibiotics. You see it? Antibiotics used to solve every problem. Now one of the biggest problems the world has is the germ has gotten so brilliant that the antibiotic can't keep up with it. And they're constantly trying to come up with a new. People go to a hospital and they catch, they go for a heart operation. That's no problem, but they end up dying from from problems. You know, the problems I'm talking about. Uh, there's a whole genius to it. We're fighting, not only is it hidden, but it's very smart, okay? It's invisible. And it's hidden, but it's it's very smart. And you see that in a case like... <laughs> He's so funny without even trying, but like that's pretty terrifying that he didn't know some basic things there. So the thing he's referring to that you can get in a hospital is a staph infection, of course. Um, but yeah, he doesn't know the difference between a bacterial infection and a virus. That's crystal clear. Like, yeah. Um, antibiotics used to kill all types of bacterial infection. They never killed viruses. They never did that. But, yeah, they're good to treat bacterial infections. Um, But, you know, that's one of the problems with viruses, period, is that we don't have the equivalent of an antibiotic for viruses. We were kind of lucky and discovered that, like, penicillin, that antibiotics kill um, bacterial infections, but we've never had that for viruses. I mean, we do have some antiviral medicines, but it really does just appear more to like mitigate symptoms than just flat out kill it. Um, now, maybe maybe there are a handful of viruses that that's not the case with, but overall, yes, there's no equivalent of an antibiotic for viruses. Um, we have vaccines, but vaccines obviously you need to get take beforehand, and not every virus has a vaccine. So we're still stuck in a very like primitive time when it comes to viruses. And that's why they just tell you like, okay, you know, drink a lot of uh, fluids and, you know, relax as much as possible. And like, that's, we don't have much to tell people, but he's talking about it. it, Like he definitely, it's clear he doesn't know the difference between a virus and a bacterial infection. And when he goes off trying to like, talk about the brilliant the enemy is just so brilliant brilliant enemy it's a brilliant you used to be able to take an antibiotic and you could just kill anything well no because you wouldn't have killed this virus or any virus with an antibiotic and you know people they go to the hospital they go to the hospital he he gets lost in his words it's hilarious they go to the hospital and they get like a uh, you know like a heart a heart thing they get like a heart surgery and then what happens is they're fine from the heart surgery but then you have problems, and the problems can kill them. That's Trump's talk for, 
you got an infection, staph infection, and the staph infection could kill you even though the heart surgery was successful. <laughs> you got to decode it like with a child. Like it reminds me of uh, my sister when my nephew used to talk to my sister when he was really little. And he would be like, And she'd be like, oh, he said he's hungry. <laughs> and I'm like, how did you hear that? It's a similar thing with Trump. You got to be able to tap into the Trump, the Trumpisms and decode it. And my decoding for everybody is pretty simple here. He has no idea that a bacterial infection and a virus are different things. He thought like an antibiotic could also kill a virus. And he's like, now they've evolved and they've gotten so brilliant that, you know, you can't get him with the antibiotics anymore. <laughs> and, of course, he doesn't know how to say staph infection, so he just says, uh, a problems. <laughs> I like how every now and then he starts putting, like, a, uh, before things, like, uh, a Denver, uh, a problems. <laughs> what are you doing, man? He just loves the camera. But anyway, uh, that's pretty sad that we have a pandemic going on in the country right now, the virus ripping through everything. And um, the president doesn't know that there's a difference between a bacterial infection and a virus. Really cool. So here's a question for everybody. Uh, this is something that popped up on my Twitter feed the other day. I wanted to share it with you. I saw a lot of these uh, tweets, but what the heck is Joe Biden going to do about young people? Because there have been many, many groups of young people who are like, yep, yeah, we're not endorsing Joe Biden. So now it does mean something different for a group versus an individual. If an individual says it, that usually means I'm not voting for them. But if, um, if a group says it, that means they're not going to put, like, literally dedicate time and resources and energy into trying to get that person elected. So it's a little bit different, and you could keep that in mind. But, like, Democratic Socialists of America were like, we're not going to endorse Biden. And in their case, again, that means we're not going to put any effort, time, energy into, like, canvassing for him or whatever. I'm sure some percentage of people who are part of the Democratic Socialists will vote for Joe Biden. Um, but they're saying we're not endorsing him. You have a bunch of uh, Sunrise Movement uh, people who are not endorsing him. Different branches of the Sunrise Movement have released that they're not endorsing him. You have the Students for Bernie organizations that are part of all, all these different universities and colleges all across the country. They're saying we're not endorsing him. So Joe Biden, make no mistake about it, he has a young person problem. And, you know, as much as Bernie got crushed with old people in the primary, uh, Biden got crushed with young people. I mean, just really, really just destroyed. We're talking about, and it's, it's honestly, it's not even just millennials. It is, it's, it's Gen X too. It's Gen X. So you got like 80% or more of millennials. And even if you do like, what's the demographic? It's like 45 and under or 49 and under or something like that. Bernie's still like 70, 75% of the vote. So Joe Biden has a young person problem, for sure. And what, what's he going to do? I don't know. I think that they're going to try to reach out more than maybe Hillary did in 2016. 
because I think they got very cocky and thought, like, no matter what, they're going to get the young people, so they don't have to put too much time and effort and energy into getting young people. I think the Democratic establishment has learned that they can't be that weak as Hillary was in 2016 on that front, so Biden will make more of an effort. But how he makes the effort is obviously what matters. And, you know, I told you guys, I think, for all, like, the so-called policy concessions he's giving Bernie, I say so-called because I don't believe him. I don't think he's going to do any of the things he's saying. But a lot of those things are silly anyway, like, oh, I'm going to lower the Medicare age to 60. Hillary last time said 50 or 55. So you're not – these aren't, like, concessions. But I think ultimately – at some point, Biden will more lean on the cultural stuff, and that's because that's their only out. What do, what do corporate Democrats have? They can't go to where you are on economics because they're not social democratic, because their donors don't want them to be. So where are they going to go to meet you? I'll go full Wokesville, and they meet you in Wokesville. They, uh, see? This is good, right? Is it good that I'm here? My name is Joe Biden. I'm putting my gender pronouns in my Twitter bio. Like That's the kind of stuff that they, I think they're going to lean into. And um, is it going to work? I don't think it's going to work in this sense. He's not going to get large turnout among young people. But, 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 and here's, I think, a more important part of the conversation. We genuinely might see an election where that doesn't matter. Because Biden has expanded the Democratic coalition. And he has expanded it with older suburbanites who are drunk on CNN and MSNBC. So all those old people who are not totally goo-goo over Trump, they're like, sure, Biden. So he, he's increased turnout in, in many ways. And, but the increased turnout is really just the suburbanites. So can we see an election which is like really just a totally new kind of electoral map where you know, young people just aren't as much part of any coalition here. I mean, yes, the young, per- the young people will more break for the Democrat, of course. But in terms of overall turnout, I think turnout will not be that great among young people. But I think Joe Biden could win even without that. It's possible he wins without that. And that's why I'm so curious to see how this race unfolds, because I think that Trump is going to be super aggressive in classic Trump style and hit Biden over and over and over and over. And it could work. Um, but it really is possible that if Biden does nothing, he could still hang on because he did nothing in the primary anyone. And it's also possible if he runs like a how dare you, sir, campaign, he could win. And, and his whole thing really can be like, I'm doing a return to normalcy. And that's the message that these older suburbanites want because they've been brainwashed by CNN and MSNBC. That Trump's like, you know, a Nazi or something and you need a respectable person who's part of the old status quo in there. And it's possible that that ends up working. So what's interesting is Biden might be able to pull it off, even just embracing the exact kind of campaign that I personally can't stand. So I will be very interested to see how this plays out. I think that the wild cards will really be the, probably the biggest factors in the election. So namely the pandemic and the market and and the jobs, Because, again, it's possible that since there's a crisis, people generally fall in line behind their leaders during a crisis and support them. That's one reaction to a crisis. But at a certain point, when it drags on for too long, people turn on their leaders. And they're like, when are you going to really change this stuff? Now we're really getting hurt here. So it, it depends on what point we are in that crisis unfolding of events. 
where are we in like the timeline of the crisis? Is it still like we're still in back our leaders mode? Because Trump's approval rating went up during this. So are we still in that back our leader mode or is it the opposite? And is it more like, oh, this has been going on for too long, dog. We got to get rid of you. And how well does Trump do playing the leader where people think like, yeah, 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 he's got strong leadership and we want to, you don't want to change leaders in the middle of the crisis. Like that's the thing that Bush ran on in 2004. Like you don't, I just started the Iraq war. You don't change the leader in the middle of the crisis. I have to see this through. That argument worked. So it's possible it works for the pandemic too. There's just too many factors, too much going on. Nobody, if anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen, they don't. They don't. This election is not a lockup for Trump. This election is not a lockup for Biden. It's a, it's a 50-50 election right now, and I'm curious to see how the dynamics unfold. And as we see how they run their campaigns, then I'll be able to give you a little bit you know, better of my sense of it and who I think might win. Or not. Or maybe even on election day, I'll be like, I don't know, dog, flip a coin. But uh, the dynamic will be interesting. There's no doubt that Biden has a young person problem. How will he manage that? How will he deal with that? Because there's no enthusiasm for Biden. There's no enthusiasm for Biden, period, but he was still winning. So, you know, he could win without the enthusiasm. It's possible. Um, but definitely, definitely, definitely a young person problem. And um, he earned it. All right, guys. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to wrap it up, bitch. All right, love you guys. Happy to be back. Um, hope everybody's safe out there and hope everybody's not getting too hammered by this terrible economy, but I love y'all and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.